Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Alot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before introducing our topic and guests today, I'd like to ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red donate button. We thank you for your generosity. On December 22nd of 2022, the NCBC celebrated the 50th anniversary of its founding. In light of this milestone, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast two very special guests, Dr. John Haas, our President Emeritus, and Dr. Joseph Meany, our current president. John will speak about the center's first 50 years, focusing on his tenure as president. Joseph will then speak to the NCBC's present-day initiatives and offer his thoughts on the center's future. John Haas, welcome, finally. Thank you, Joseph. Happy to be with you. I should say Joe did distinguish you from Joseph. Yes, we we should probably do that. And Joseph Meany, welcome back to Bioethics on Air. It's good to be here, Joe. All right. So, um, John, you are a new guest. Joseph is not. He's He's been on a number of times. But, John, as a new guest on our podcast, I always ask people to please briefly, and I, I should probably underscore briefly here because I think we could probably talk for three hours about all the stuff you've done in your life. But um, I was wondering if you could briefly tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, work experience, really kind of leading up to your uh, becoming the president of the NCBC. Yeah, sure. I... Um my educational background, I had my licentiate in moral theology from the University of Fribourg in Switzerland. And I had my PhD in moral theology from Catholic University of America. I had wonderful mentors at both places, Father Cervez Pinkaris, who's considered to be the man most responsible for the renewal of moral theology, a Belgian Dominican. And uh, Dr. Bill May, who was a, a layman and a very, very faithful Catholic. And he was my as we say, Dr. Pater. He was, he was the director of my, uh, my PhD work. I first had my encounter with uh, the Pope John 23rd Medical Moral Research and Education Center, as it was known way back then, yeah. um, in 1977, actually. I go way back. When I was teaching at the Pontificate College Josephinum and um, got to know a bishop by the name of Bernard Law, who was the Bishop of Springfield, Cape Girardeau. And he was on the board of this Pope John Center. And uh, they were having a meeting back then um, about whether or not it made any sense for the Pope John Center to continue in existence, actually. Really? And so they, they brought in a number of consultants and uh, the staff at the time. Uh, I was probably the youngest one in the room at the, at the time. Um, even though I wasn't that young. But anyway, I was charged with putting the notes up on the board to uh, see whether or not the uh, the center should continue. And the, the conclusion was that it should. And um, the, the center's interesting because I, I call it a peripatetic center because it keeps moving around. It was founded in St. Louis. And then when Bernard Law, who was on the board of the Pope John Center, became Archbishop of uh, Boston, he took the center with him under his patronage. And so it moved up to, uh, to Boston and then later it moved on to Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, but as I say, I first had the, uh, my first initial contact with him in 1977 
1980, I think, is when I first became a consultant uh, to the center in a more official capacity. Yeah. Interesting. I was wondering, uh, before getting into the kind of talking about the history of the NCBC, um, we probably know that, or our listeners probably know that uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI died on the 31st of December of this past year, 2022. And John, you knew him. Um personally knew him, both as Cardinal Ratzinger and as Pope uh, Benedict XVI. And I was wondering, just you know, before we go on to the, to the NCBC, if, if you had any words um, uh, to tell us about Pope Benedict. Well, I first got to know Cardinal Ratzinger in, in 1990 because St. Charles Borromeo Seminary uh, wanted me to come there to teach. And I had a large family, and uh, in order for them to be able to pay me enough, they went out and endowed a chair in honor of John Cardinal Kroll, who had just retired. So uh, they had a three-day international theological symposium to inaugurate the John Cardinal Kroll Chair in Moral Theology, and virtually every bishop, archbishop, and cardinal in the country showed up for it. And the man who gave the keynote address was one Cardinal Ratzinger, and then I gave the inaugural address. So that's the first time I really got to spend time with him. Uh, I, I remember the thrill of him just stopping by my office to sit and chat with me, which I was kind of in, incredulous about. Um, and uh, it, we just forged a relationship that long ago. And when he was at the congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and I became the president of the Bioethics Center, that forged the relationship further and then gave it an added dimension in terms of the critical important work that the, uh, the, the National Catholic Bioethics Center was doing in the United States and the necessity of the involvement of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Yeah. So that's how I really got to know him. There, there was never a time I went to Rome and requested an audience with him. And if he was there, uh, there was never a time he didn't grant it. So Even as Pope? No, no. Uh, While well, he was prefect of the Who's congregation. The last time I saw him was in November 2014 at, at his residence at the monastery in the Vatican Gardens. That was the last time I saw him. Yeah. Personally. Joseph, I, I was wondering, if, had, I, I think you've met Pope Benedict as well, too. Probably not to the, didn't know him to the extent that John did, but uh, I think you knew you had met him as well. Yeah. So I, I was fortunate enough to meet him through Cardinal Alfonso Lopez Trujillo, who was the president of the Pontifical Council for the Family. And we'd put together this lexicon that was a project of uh, Cardinal Lopez Trujillo of uh, ambiguous and dangerous terms relating to life and family. So I was in charge of the English edition of that, and I was able to present a copy to uh, the Holy Father, Pope Benedict, which was really wonderful. But speaking about books, uh, we have a a book uh, based on two lectures that Cardinal Ratzinger gave at the Bishop's Workshops of the NCBC uh, called On Conscience that people can find on our website. But he gave lectures at our, our workshop that we do for bishops every two years, in 1984 and 1991. So he really was a, a very strong friend and patron of the NCBC. Yeah, he was. And I'm going to, I'll, I'll uh, link that book in the show notes for this. All right. So let's, let's kind of talk a little bit about the NCBC. So John, I was wondering if you could give us an overview of the NCBC from its foundation, starting in 1972 to the time you became president. Uh, I believe that was 1996. Kind of who were the personalities and what were the center's primary activities? Well, initially, oddly enough, it began with a loan from the Catholic Hospital Association uh, to provide counsel and research to deal with ethical issues arising in healthcare. And 
over time, the, the loan was not repaid, so it turned into a grant. It often happens in the Catholic Church. <laughs> and, and then secondly, and I don't think I'm telling stories out of school, th- there was kind of a growing apart uh, of the Pope John Center and the Catholic Health Association as it came to be known. And um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty significant divide between the two in, in, uh, institutions because of their interpretation of the teachings of the church in healthcare. And I got to say, at, at the heart of it was differences over the question of contraception and whether or not tubal ligations could be done in Catholic hospitals. One of the first things I did after becoming president was to join the Catholic Hospital Association, the Catholic Health Association, see if we could bridge that divide, which I think we did pretty successfully over the years. Uh, but as I say, it was it was founded, first of all, in St. Louis, because that's where the uh, Catholic Hospital Association was located. Then it moved, as I said, later to uh, to Boston. And uh, it was under the patronage, as I say, of, of uh, then Cardinal Law. And so there was a very, very close working relationship between us. But there were a lot of healthcare systems and hospitals, Catholic hospitals, in Boston, and so we became very involved with all of that, and and then finally I moved down here to move the center to Philadelphia. Uh, the first president of the center was a Father Albert Morchevsky, who embodied the Catholic ideal of the compatibility between science and religion, because he, he had taught biology, molecular biology at Baylor Medical School. And uh, before he had his vocation as a uh, as a Dominican priest, so he became the first president of the center. He was not a very good fundraiser, and so <laughs> they uh, he was a fine holy priest and man of science, but didn't really know how to raise money. Um, and, and the center almost folded. And the next one they hired as president knew very little about bioethics. But he was a glad handing back slapping Irish priest, Father Bill Gallagher. And uh, he came up with the idea that he would travel around the country, meet every single bishop and archbishop, and urge them to join the center, but to commit to the center one penny per Catholic in their jurisdiction for a five year period. And that really saved the center financially. I mean, it really did. So you could have a you could have a small diocese that didn't bring in very much, but you could have large ones like Philadelphia or New York or Chicago, right. uh, and that kind of commitment uh, really saved the day. I have to yeah. say, yeah. the next president was a Monsignor Clister, also with no background really in uh, bioethics or even moral theology. He was a liturgist, but he was a priest of Detroit, and the chairman of the board at that time was Cardinal Adam Maida. And uh, so he served for a while. And then Father Russell Smith, who was a well-trained moral theologian, became the president of the center. And he was actually my, my predecessor. Interesting. So how did John, how did you become president? What was the, what was the story behind that? Oh my goodness. Well, (laughs) (laughs) the brief version. Yeah. Well, well, back in 1980, I came on as a consultant to the center. But they had endowed this chair for me at St. Charles Borromeo Seminary. So I really didn't, I had no interest in becoming uh, the president of the National Catholic Bioethics Center, or still still the Pope John Center back then. So they flew me up to Boston, and they, the, the uh, search committee 
interviewed me and asked what sorts of changes I would make. And I told them. And so I went back home and they called me later and they said, we'd really like to have you come up and do a second interview. We really liked a lot of the ideas you had. And I said, well, fine, I'd be happy to talk to you about ideas, but I actually have no interest whatsoever in becoming president of the Bioethics Center. I have a very nice uh, endowed chair down here and I love teaching. Uh, so they persisted and I went up and we had a good conversation and I came up with some uh, other ideas and suggestions as to what could be done. And I was out of the country at the time, but they put a formal proposal to me. And by the time I came back, uh, it was a done deal. <laughs> the, the Cardinal Log uh, had a conversation with, with Cardinal uh, Bevilacqua, who was the Archbishop of Philadelphia at the time. And they agreed that I really should be the president of the Bioethics Center. So that's basically how it happened. Yeah. I was traded. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, your uh, your story becoming president is, isn't that, uh, I don't think it's that interesting, was it? <laughs> Much less dramatic. No, no. <laughs> but I think equally interesting, though. Uh, yeah, well, it was it was basically through uh, through our friendship with John Haas and, and the international work that I had been doing in Rome and elsewhere. And, you know, I had done my Ph.D. In, in clinical bioethics at the Catholic University of the Sacred Heart, uh, which is a program that Cardinal Screccia founded in Rome. And then I was based there in Rome uh, for a while and then off in Paris. So again, uh, like John, I was, I was kind of happy doing what I was doing, but I also saw that the work of the NCBC was so incredibly important and it was, it was very important to lead that and to, to bring as much success as we could in that direction. So it was uh, also one of those things where you kind of see Providence's hand, but at the same time, I would never have predicted it, you know, <laughs> years in advance. Well, I, I hear you. Well, I was deeply committed to the mission of, of the Bioethics Center. And, and I told Cardinal Bevilacqua when this was coming to conclude, my time at the, at the seminary was coming to an end. I said, that, you know, we needed a powerful, clear, lucid national voice uh, <laughs> in the area of, of bioethics and, and, and pro-life issues. So that's, he said, well, go with my blessing. And so I was, I was out the door. <laughs> but yep. but I, I think the center has become that. And I think an interesting part of this is I, I knew Joseph for a number of years on a personal basis. I knew his wife. And it's funny, when, when you start thinking of a successor, you don't think of looking close to home, right? I mean, you, think, you, you don't think you, you, don't think you uh, would turn to your good buddy to uh, maybe follow you. And I, we were in Rome, and I had a, a friend who has worked for me for years, a German just got his PhD in communications from the University of Salzburg, but he was so impressed with Joseph when he met him. He said to me, why in the world would you hire Dr. Meany? And I said, that's a splendid idea. <laughs> so that it was just, it, it, talk about divine providence. I mean, it was, uh, it, it seemed very clearly God's hand. And, uh, and of all the boxes I had for my successor, Joseph checked off every single one of them. So, uh, I, I thought it was indeed divine providence. We'll go from there. All right, so let's dial the clock back a little bit, John. Um, so when you, when you came on board as president, I was wondering, what was your vision for the NCBC when you started? And how did you seek to bring this vision to reality during your presidency? Well, I have to say the, the center was not in very good shape when I became president. Um, 
when I became president, I realized why they were so insistent on getting me. It was the center itself was virtually on life support and um, had very, very limited activities. And I wanted to see it become the major principal bioethics center in the country as an articulate spokesman for the life issues. And with my first address to the board, that's exactly what I told them. That was my mission. That was my goal. And there was a little debate initially, too, when I became president as to who our fundamental constituents would be. And I said it really had to be the bishops. Well, I got some pushback on that. Not everybody agreed to that. I think it was a wise choice and because they're the ones uh, vested with ultimate authority overseeing all the ministries of the church. And uh, so I told my board I would go out and try to meet with every single bishop in the country and, and set out on a, on a lot, of, uh, lot of trips that really gathered the strong support of the, uh, of the bishops for our, for our mission. And uh, once that happened, you know, we were able to play a very, very significant role in the institution of Catholic health care. Because, I mean, up to that point, we were, uh, most of our consultations were clinical. You know, at what point can we remove life support and that sort of thing? But once we had the support of the bishops, and once the bishops began to have a greater interest in this vast ministry, which ultimately was under their authority, they looked to us to help with that. So right. the, the, the role of the center developed very significantly into an institutional one in which we provided advice and counsel for institutional questions that were arising without ever losing the people turning to us for help with clinical questions, because we get over 2,000 consults a year uh, from individuals. So we continue to have that role, but it expanded tremendously into institutional issues. Yeah, and then and the institutional issues, that's a big focus with the, the SEER program and the CHEER oh, program nice. yeah, and, right. and all of those, they're, they're really growing um, quite a bit. I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Catholic healthcare, because it's, it's a nice kind of segue into the next question, which is, what challenges did the NCBC face, and really, probably Catholic healthcare as a whole at the time? What challenges did they face during your time as president, and how did the NCBC seek to meet those challenges? Well, this is kind of interesting <laughs> because, as I said, initially we were dealing with clinical issues, and these are the sorts of questions that professors of moral theology around the country in different seminaries and Catholic institutions were dealing with. We were seen with regard to Catholic healthcare institutions as off on the side, as, as really considerably marginalized. Um, nobody even much thought of us as having much of an involvement in uh, Catholic healthcare institutions. I remember being at one and I overheard the, uh, one of the top leaders of Catholic, the Catholic Health Association say, well, you're not going to believe this, but even the Pope John Center is here. <laughs> but over time, the Catholic healthcare itself tremendously evolved. In my 25 years as president, virtually every single one of the current uh, Catholic healthcare systems came into being. Wow. I mean, they didn't exist. So I w we were watching that develop. And as that was developing, uh, bishops were, began to turn to us more and more for assistance. And then the, uh, they began to turn more and more to Rome to seek guidance as well. Uh, by divine providence, I had this very nice relationship with the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. Doesn't hurt. And, no, it didn't hurt at all. 
So, um, yeah, I, I must say there was there was never an analysis. Uh, I, I hope I'm not violating any any uh, pontifical secret here. I don't think so. Well, we, we <laughs> can cut it out if you do. Uh, okay, so. <laughs> okay. There was, there was never an analysis that we did that was rejected by by the Holy See. Um, so I'm not I'm not being specific by any particular right. case. I guess it's okay. So, frankly, the 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 emergence of of Catholic institutional health care as a kind of behemoth as as this gargantuan presence developed right along with the development of of the NCBC as uh, as a player in in that in that scene and we, we continue to be there and, and of course with the bishops having the ultimate authority and and the, and the bishops turning to us we were just in God's providence in, in a position to fulfill that mission for the church yeah I, this would be a question Joseph could respond to as well too um, I, I was just thinking, when did the name change from Pope John the Twenty Third Center to the NCBC? We've been kind of going back and forth with the names, and I think it would probably be important to uh, just identify when did that name change happen. Well, shortly, happen? shortly after I became president, and we were in Boston, and I said the name is too long. I mean, Pope John Twenty Third Medical More Research and Education Center. I said I can barely get it out in one breath. I can't get it on a business card. <laughs> So I urged for a name change. And it's interesting, there's a seminary in Boston for late vocations called Pope John's Seminary. Right. And a lot of people were confusing the center with the seminary for late vocations. We were both located in Boston. It did have some benefit because one of our major benefactors thought that he was going for a reception for the <laughs> seminary, and it was for us. And I forged a wonderful relationship with him, and we got a lot of money from him over the years. So, but in in truth, it created more problems than than it solved. So I proposed to the board that we simply change our name. And Cardinal Law said, "Well, I want you to present that to the bishops' conference." And I said, "But we don't have to, Your Eminence. I mean, canon law says that the ordinary of local jurisdiction can allow." the name Catholic to be used. And he said, John, I didn't ask for an argument from you. He said, I want you to go to the USCCB with the proposed name change. And it was a brilliant move on his part. So there were like 30 bishops sitting on the administrative board. And so I had to go and present to them. And I had all the material put together about what we were doing and had nice folders prepared for them. And, uh, and I made my pitch and they voted unanimously to allow us to be the National Catholic Bioethics Center. So it was very smart on the part of Cardinal Law because we, we had the whole body of bishops behind us. And, and then the bishops were known as National Conference of Catholic Bishops, NCCB. Right. And I thought maybe we'd have a subliminal advantage <laughs> by being the NCBC along with the NCCB. So anyway, so that's how the name change came about. Uh, you gotta love it. We should we should do a podcast where you just tell stories. <laughs> Got plenty of them in my advanced uh, years. <laughs> uh, some of them. Well, actually, I'd love. I, I bet listeners would love to hear them, but we probably shouldn't tell them all. <laughs> no, I can't possibly. <laughs> John, couple of couple of questions, and then and then we'll move over to Joseph. What were your greatest achievements during your tenure as president of the NCBC? Well, I, I, I see two. I mean, I, I see our evolving into this uh, being a, a major player, if you want to put it that way, in, in terms of 
institutional Catholic health care, because over time we went from being on the periphery where they would refer to, oh, even the Pope John Center is here, to they would simply refer to us, oh, the center says. <laughs> you know, so we, we gained a, a kind of gravitas over the years. And I would say I was very careful with those I hired. And I would say the intellectual capacity and competency of everyone that I, I brought on board uh, served the center and the church extraordinarily well. Well, so present, we just, present company excluded. No, no, not present company excluded. Uh, you were my last hire, I think, as I recall. Uh, so it was like the capstone of my whole career. Oh, oh, <laughs> so I would say. Well, technically, Joseph could be your last hire. Joseph Meany could be your last hire. There you go. Well, technically, I didn't hire him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would say that. And, and then. I, there's something, the, the one that I consider actually my single most significant achievement, I can't talk about <laughs> because, <laughs> because it was done behind the scenes. And l- let me just say it, w- it was it was a very significant win for the bishops exercising their authority over, over Catholic health care. But anyway, I, I again, I think it's the emergence of the center as, as a, uh, a place where the bishops could turn to seek guidance and help. The other thing, too, I did say when I told Carter Bevilacqua when I was leaving that I wanted this to be a very powerful, articulate national voice for pro-life causes. Joseph knows this because he's deeply immersed in it. We are now called upon by government agencies and secular institutions to provide ethical consults. And uh, that's been a very significant, important development course as well. Back in the old days, that would have been unthinkable, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. If you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently besides not hiring me? What would you you have done differently, if anything? Honestly, I I, I can't think of anything I I would have done differently. I mean, it was hard. It was extraordinarily hard. Took a lot of time, a lot of effort. But no, I, I, I can't think of anything I frankly would have done differently. It involved terrible sacrifices, I got to say. And right now, I just on this opportunity to give great testimony to my beloved late wife and, and the family, because to do this, I had to uh, leave them without me quite a bit, which yep. of course may have led to a successful 56-year marriage. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was I was lucky enough to meet Marty. I love Marty. She was great, and uh, uh, she was a great uh, she was a great uh, second half for you. Let's put it that well, way. Well, she sure was. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love that. One last question, John. You've retired, obviously, as president. You're president emeritus now, right. uh, but you certainly haven't left the NCBC. So, as I said, you're, you're president emeritus. You're a senior fellow. You're a member of the board of directors. So, kind of, what do you do in those roles today for the center? Oh, I sit around, twiddle my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm still involved in consultations, and uh, some of them are sort of specifically directed to me. I mean, I have certain a number of clients of the yep. NCBC, which are yep. sort of mine. Uh, I attend the, uh, the ethicist meetings as much as I can. I'm a full-time professor now also back at the seminary, so I, I sometimes have scheduling conflicts. And I help raise money. That's one thing I wanted to get away from. But one thing Joseph keeps saying, hey, <laughs> could you give us a hand here? So uh, that's been relatively successful, too. I'm, I'm just thrilled that I'm able to continue my 
association uh, to the extent I've been able to with the center. Yeah. And you've learned how to use Zoom. I have indeed, yes. <laughs> so one of my conditions for coming on as president of the NCBC was that I wanted John's sage advice and uh, and continued involvement with the center to, to help me out, uh, particularly as, as we were starting out, because I was so new to the center and, and all the, you know, the many, many years of, of wonderful work that had gone on before. So it's, it's been really wonderful. I, I have to say, um, I think John was, was dropped in at the deep end when he started off as NCBC president. Uh, I, I really had a lot of support from him and, and others uh, as I began, even though, you know, we had the historic pandemic start about six months after I started. <laughs> I know, that was crazy. So, Baptism by fire for you too, Joseph. Absolutely. All right. So Joseph, let's kind of shift the the focus to you for the second part of the interview. So John Haas spoke about the challenges facing the NCBC and Catholic healthcare during his tenure as president. Wondering what challenges face the NCBC and really Catholic healthcare today? Are they the same? Are they different from what John had spoken about? I think there are a lot of similar challenges, uh, particularly when it comes to you know government interference, uh, court interference in the the practice of healthcare, and and that really affects how the church can carry out a ministry that is is true to our our ethical and moral vision. It is interesting, though, of course, that the Dobbs decision came down, and and abortion on demand is no longer the case in many different states in the United States. And so that big pressure of abortion on Catholic healthcare has perhaps gone down a bit, although President Biden is doing everything in his power to try and bring it back. Oh, you know? Yes, he is. But you know, other new issues have come up, and I would say particularly the whole transgender issue has, has been looming large in recent years and continues to do so. And I think there's a, there's a real need, and the NCBC is, is striving to provide uh, assistance to the church in dealing in, in a very compassionate but also very truthful manner with those issues. So there are a whole series of new issues that are coming up. And of course, you know, the, the course of technology has just really continued on at a frenetic pace. So you know, artificial wombs are not so far in the future anymore. There are quite a few issues in terms of genetic uh, manipulation and, and genetic changes uh, that can be done in laboratories now. Uh, We also had a whole series of things that came out again, uh, just because of the pandemic in terms of informed consent and, um, you know, conscientious objection and all kinds of things like that. So I would say the issues are expanding uh, that we're having to face, but a lot of the old issues such as contraception and sterilization, et cetera, continue to be issues. So it's kind of, um, a whole series of new things coming on. And, and one of the things I have to add that uh, the center has been able to do, thanks to John Hawes, is we have such a strong academic voice now because he, he helped us found our peer-reviewed academic journal, the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, that didn't exist before and gives us, gives us an academic voice out there. But very important because academe, I think, now is under a lot of censorship a lot of difficulty for people to express themselves and, and to be faithful to Catholic teaching because they have a hard time getting published. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph, if, or Joe, <laughs> if, if, if I might add, I, I should actually have mentioned that when you talked about the achievement, but uh, there wasn't anything like the National Catholic Bioethics Center uh, quarterly of, of its stature out there. There just wasn't. And the other great achievement during my tenure was the establishment of the National Catholic Certification Program in Healthcare Ethics. 
And again, that came from the bishops. The bishops came to me and said, we have the ethical and religious directives, the ethical guidance for healthcare being applied differently across the country. And we need to educate uh, vice presidents for ethics and CEOs of healthcare systems and, and health Catholic healthcare professionals on the proper understanding of the Catholic moral tradition. So that was that started up under um, uh, Father Tad Paholchik and with over a thousand graduates at this point and uh, Dr. Ted Furton yep. got the, uh, the quarterly going, which has won first prize for scholarly excellence over and over and over again. So those were like individual achievements within the bigger, broader ones I was talking about before that we should be very proud of. Yeah, absolutely. So Joseph, next question. So the NCBC's mission is, quote, and we kind of, John, you just talked about this, to provide education, guidance, and resources to the church and society to uphold the dignity of the human person in healthcare and biomedical research, thereby sharing in the ministry of Jesus Christ and his church, unquote. Moving forward, how can the NCBC better fulfill this mission? Well, I certainly think that we need to be more present on the national stage. And, you know, that's actually one of the areas where the pandemic was useful because a lot of people were interested in the bioethical questions. And so we were being interviewed by a lot of secular media sources, et cetera, but also bishops were turning to us. We were working closely with the USCCB. And that's one of those areas, again, that uh, I'm just kind of building on, but we, we have a, a wonderful relationship with the pro-life secretariat of the USCCB. And we're also on the subcommittee on healthcare of the doctoral committee at the USCCB. And we get pulled in when, when the USCCB has questions and, and, and issues that they, they need a good bioethical response on. But I think the, the center in a certain sense, and, and one of the things we created just recently in, in 2022 was the personal consultations department, because we've always done consultations from individuals, but we realized that it was possible to provide even more than just answers, uh, that we could reach out to individuals and others and say, this is you know, what we can offer you, but we can also pray for you, provide you with resources, and also provide training for the next generation of bioethicists. So we've really revamped and, and enhanced our internship program, created a postdoctoral fellowship program to help people who want to study bioethics and work in bioethics to get some, some real um, experience through the NCBC's consultation service and our publications, getting to know uh, all the different issues that work with us, and also our work with different universities. So at this point, we have relationships with a whole series of different Catholic universities, and it's wonderful because we have a, a great way to be in touch with them and to help Help them with their students and, and with their professors as well. So the NCBC, I think, has is called to have a strong presence just on on the, the national stage, but also to to really be there for the bishops when they need it, and not just that they can call on us, but that we can provide them with documents and briefings and help them with their diocesan policies. Uh, our cheer program, uh, which you you mentioned briefly, is a Catholic Health Insurance Ethics Review, but we've been helping dioceses just to make sure that their health insurance programs don't cover anything that is not in accordance with Catholic teaching. And that's wonderful. So it's there are a lot of services that the NCBC can provide and can provide more and more to the church. And so I'm, I'm very excited that we're, we're doing that, but also working even closer in the post-Dobbs environment 
with state Catholic conference groups, because, you know, a lot of these legislation, you know, laws now are not going to be passed at the federal level, but at the state level. And Mm -hmm. so then the church is, is present there, but they also need the ethical advice that we can provide. So that's all, all kind of part of the program. Yeah. Doing a lot of the the work on the state level. I'm really enjoying that being involved with it. Uh, Joseph, John mentioned earlier the term succession planning. Um, and that's obviously a very important thing for any organization looking for the future. Kind of f- from your take as, as the president today, what's, what's, how, is, how is the NCBC succession planning or preparing for those who will take our place in the future? Yeah, I think a big part of that is the fact that we're engaging with so many people involved in Catholic bioethics and trying to get to know them and help them uh, as they grow also into different positions. But the NCBC is expanding. We're now up to seven full-time ethicists. And then we're we're kind of combining, I think, the best of both worlds in the sense of, of maintaining our, our individuals who are emeritus, retired, but still have a huge number of connections and are very involved. But at the same time, bringing on young people with good backgrounds to, to be the next generation of the, of the NCBC. Yeah. So Joseph, what's your your vision for the NCBC as we begin our our second 50 years? I think the the NCBC has to be a very proactive institution. I think one of the things that is very helpful is not just to react to things, but to really think and reflect on, you know, upcoming issues and upcoming dilemmas and to provide information to that. And so one of the things that we're doing with the bishops when we, we have our workshops with them, is to tell them not only you know what are issues today, but also looking at the future. And I think our role is, is only going to expand as the importance of bioethics grows. I, I think one of the things that people don't reflect on enough, uh, particularly in terms of end-of-life issues, is that these bioethical questions are pretty much going to affect every single person, either themselves personally or, or not. <clears throat> In terms of you know the difference between what can be done and what should be done at the end of life, is is only expanding. So I think the NCBC has a lot of potential to go out there and be proactive, provide good guidance, and basically, we don't really force people to do one thing or another. We're basically trying to assist them in their discernment to to find what is right and and to to think with the mind of the church. So I think the more that we can do that, the better. And the more institutional we can be, the more firm as an institution we can be, uh, the better. You know. So I think one of the things we need to do is to endow the NCBC with with more resources so that we can be more financially secure and also to uh, to also expand the work because it's always difficult to create new programs, et cetera, when you have to find the resources to do that. So hopefully that'll, those, those projects will get done in the next few years. I this, want to finish, Joseph, with kind of a, an unfair question. This is, this is the crystal ball question. What does the NCBC look like 10 years from now? What does it look like 20 years from now? I won't ask you 50 years in the future because that's a little too much, but <laughs> 10 years, 20 years out, what, what, what does the NCBC look like? Yeah, I think the NCBC is going to be a very vibrant institution. I think we're going to to make our links even closer with uh, with different Catholic universities because I think there's a lot of synergy there. Uh, we have such an academic powerhouse in terms of all of our PhD ethicists, etc. I think we're going to be also very involved in the new kind of communication tools out there 
whether it's it's the different forms of media that we can be involved in, but also the, the NCBC being a big part of the communication that needs to happen on these bioethical issues that are going to be only expanding and, and becoming more important in people's lives. I think our public policy side, where we're providing some guidance and, and education, is, is probably going to expand because there's going to be more need for it. And uh, there's there's probably you know much more in the way of um, expert testimony, both in front of legislatures but in front of courts that will happen, because the NCBC has has a huge expertise, particularly in the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services. But all that I think is going to become more and more important over time, and the NCBC has has a real role to play there as a kind of a unique institution. All right, I'd like to close this interview with uh, some words of wisdom from our two guests today. So, so John Haas, some words of wisdom for our listeners. Well, I would just say remain steadfast in the faith, look ever to Jesus, and look to his Catholic Church, which embodies and carries forth and applies his teaching. And if we do that individually, if we do that as a church, if we do that as the National Catholic Bioethics Center, we'll have success. Maybe not earthly success, but we know the success that we're really concerned about. So I would just say, if, if we remain faithful, all will be well. Amen. Joseph Meany, your final words of wisdom for our listeners today. I would just ask for prayers that the NCBC remain faithful to Catholic teaching, that we try to express the mind of the church in as, as profound a way as possible, uh, both clinging very closely to the truth, but also being very compassionate for some of these dilemmas, which are really terrible that people face in certain situations and, and where good solutions are, are very hard to find. I think bioethics has in its its very core this view of like we have to, to do good and avoid evil. We have to, to, to really strive to be witnesses to the dignity of the human person and to really go for uh, the most compassionate and truthful solutions out there. And it's it's not easy. So we, we definitely need prayer and we need to to be very honest and truthful about that and to, to seek the guidance of the church and to be humble about it. So I, I would really ask for all those things from our listeners. Awesome. Dr. John Haas, Dr. Joseph Meany, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J. Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the blogs and podcast button on the main page and then click bioethics on air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website again, ncbcenter.org and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.